thank you all for coming out in the snow from your various habitats out there. It's good to be in Vermont again, and um, I hope for the week that I'm here, I'll be able to get to know some of you all a little bit better. I am assuming that a lot of you are, are writers who are, are here. So I thought that I would um, read a little bit of everything and then we could have a, a little bit of a talk. Um, speaking of talks, tomorrow when I do um, the craft session, I'm gonna be talking about point of view, particularly um, the ways in which writers use first-person point of view and what first-person point of view um, can do, sort of the range of first-person. Um, so I'll read a little section from The Birds of Opulence. Um, things are happening. Um, this is like smack dab in the middle of the book, and I guess the only thing you should know is that um, it's 1962, and, um, and a baby has been born in a squash patch. Uh, I'm from Appalachia. Almost all of my writing is set in Appalachia, so. And uh, there's an extended family here. Mm, that's all I'm telling you. <laughs> and this is sort of a... Um, this is a weird thing about the point of view of this book too so it's it's sort of omniscient sort of not after everyone has had a bite to eat mama Minnie taps her cane against the floor three, three times the room quiets and she walks into the center like a preacher woman and says God sure does make a way don't he sister Betty shouts amen and everyone claps we sure do feel blessed to have her, Mama Minnie points to the baby, and blessed to have so many of the Lord's servants with us here today. She bows and then says, thank you, Jesus, and looks up at the crowd. One of the younger women whispers to the others, and they cover their mouths. People applaud again, and a few boys who have come back for more food whistle through their fingers. One of the men pulls a tall, lanky boy into the kitchen by the arm and threatens to whip him in front of everybody. A few of the women look to see if Lucy will address the group. Lucy's the woman who just had the baby. But when she lowers her head toward the baby, the room turns noisy again. People continue milling around the house, talking among themselves, drinking every last drop of lemonade, eating every cookie, every last damn peanut. When the baby begins to cry, her tiny mouth bowing out into a perfect thimble, a few women turn and smile, tilt their heads to the side. One of them says with delight, ain't that the cutest thing you ever did see? But when the baby reaches a full soft cry, Lucy begins a howl. Tookie, that's her mother, rubs her shoulders, but she's inconsolable. Joe comes from the kitchen, Joe's her husband, kneels down beside the chair. Baby, you all right? Lucy's lips are quivering, her chest heaving. She lets out a moan, cries harder, and gasps for breath. She does not stop. The crowd is now quiet again. Some of the women admire Joe's hand on Lucy's leg and feel the imaginary weight of a man's hand on their own knees. Others are whispering among themselves, crazy heifer. 
Well, if that don't beat all. Lucy walks back and forth in the chair. Tookie reaches in to take the baby. Joe strokes Lucy's knee like a man who doesn't know what else to do. But before he can intervene, before Tookie can pull the baby safely into her own arms, before Mama Minnie can cross the room, the baby rolls from Lucy's lap, rolls like a can of lard, like a wad of fabric or a cumbersome quilt like a rolling pin or a small sack of new potatoes and makes a thud on the plank floor like something being cast away. There is one wide-eyed look on every face in the room. A great communal hush rises up and for a few seconds no one says a word. Then all attention turns to Tookie who falls to her knees, scoops the baby into her arms and then almost topples head first when she tries to get back to her feet. A few women grab the hands of their children, lower their heads, and leave quietly. When the front door flies open and people start to step off the porch, Mama Minnie sees a large woman from church, Francine Clark, standing at the edge of the yard holding a Pyrex dish. Francine steals a nervous glance toward Mama Minnie, then nods to her and turns back toward the road without coming in, without leaving what she brought. Mama Minnie, who still has one ear on the commotion but her eye on Francine Clark, follows her wide hips down the worn path in the grass and even in the midst of the chaos says aloud to herself, something always been funny about that woman. Afraid the baby might be hurt, Tookie pulls back the blanket and runs her fingers across the baby's head in search of lumps. She looks for bruises. The baby stops crying. Kiki watches his mother and watches the remaining neighbors watching his mother. Mama, he hollers out, but Lucy acts as if she doesn't hear him. She ignores her firstborn. She buries her eyes in her hands and bites her lip, but tears are streaming down her face and dripping off her chin. Joe rubs her arm. Let me get you back to bed, he says, and the women are hushed again by the love in his voice. Lucy raises her head, and for a moment her face is so twisted and puffy that Joe barely recognizes her. She stands, wilts, leans into Joe, and he leads her through the maze of onlookers to their bedroom where he places her in the bed and pulls a sheet up over her. Nobody speaks a word until Mama Minnie says, Here, y'all get some of this caramel cake before you leave. And Tookie, with the baby still pressed against her, rushes over to help wrap pieces of cake in tinfoil with her free hand. As everyone leaves, a clap of thunder sounds in the distance and they scatter toward their homes. Rain pours out in buckets. Elders return to their front porches. Children search for June bugs. Whippoorwills serenade a young couple who dare to make love up against the roughness of a tool shed way out in the dark. Somewhere a dog barks for a child to come back out to play. But the baby, this Yolanda, born out in the field in the old way, and her mother, Lucy Good Brown, a plum crazy woman, are never far from every lip. And poor Joe Brown, she's lucky as sin to have him. Wonder if he don't pack up and leave. On this night, and for a long time to come, every tongue stirs. Inside the Good House, Mama Minnie opens up her Bible, thinking of a few soothing words to say. Then just as quick, she decides to keep them to herself until morning. I'll stop there.
so that's just a little excerpt from the birds of opulence and those crazy folks. Um, this is a part of a short story that um, appeared, well, it's the, enti the entire arc of the short story. Um, I condensed it down a little bit for time. Um, this is a story that appeared in Agni um, magazine. And I guess the, the, the bloody beating pulsing heart of this story um, came when, um, it's called The Way We Live Now. And um, of course that's a nod to Anthony Trollope's novel, The Way We Live Now, and it's also a nod to uh, Susan Sontag's short story. Has anybody read the Susan Sontag story? So in the 80s, I don't remember what year, Susan Tag Sontag had a, a story in the New Yorker called The Way We Live Now, and at the heart of the story, um, it's about the AIDS crisis. Um, so I started thinking about what is a crisis for black people um, right now, and I thought of police brutality. So um, as old as I am, <laughs> um, this is a short story uh, that's written from the voice of um, a teenager, and there's one of their um, kin, um, meaning one of their friends has been um, has 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 been a, a victim of police brutality. So it's written sort of in the same vein of Susan Tag Sontag's "The Way We Live Now," and so you'll hear a lot of different names. I think there's 15 different names in this short story. Uh, Susan Salentag's story had a lot of names too, um, so it's communal in that way. Um, and I'm not an actor, but, it, but it's a very voicey story. Um, so I'll pick up on that a little bit. And then I'll read four poems and then I'll be done. The Way We Live Now. We thought Kendra was playing about him being shot in the first place. Not him, he had good grades, Tika told Freddie, and he was planning to go to college, according to Trey, because they ran track together. But he did smoke a little weed, Erica pointed out, at least once because she was there. But the counselor at school confirmed that he had, in fact, applied to four universities. He was a finalist for two scholarships, Marie told Phil, which meant he wasn't the kind of dude just to be walking around reckless. That kind of shit ain't him, Kai said, and cried when we found out because Kai and him was tight. He was so little, Sabrina said, and slapped the back of her hand against her open palm when she heard the police describe him as menacing. Five, seven, one fifty, she said, and shook her head until her box braids slapped across her chest. I heard he had a gun on him, Tanisha said to Trinity, which might mean that you never really know a person or what they're capable of, but Trinity said he didn't have no gun. Dontre, who was there when he got shot, said dude was just holding his cell phone. Dontre ran his hand over his chin, then said shit was fucked up. The school kept offering grief counseling, and a whole lot of us went just to get out of classes, but Dontre refused. Kendra said she heard Dontre whispering, fuck all of this, every time the office called him out of homeroom to talk. Dontre went to the guidance office only about scholarships, Marie said to Phil, which meant maybe Dontre was thinking about going to college too. Big Hodge at the corner store said 
nice and respectful kid, always smiling, cutting up, no trouble at all. And then Big Hodge invited all the neighborhood kids to get a box of hot tamales and a bag of jalapeno potato chips on his discount because that was her homeboy's favorites. But when Big Hodge confirmed all of this during his interview with a television reporter, the manager at the Burger Shack called the station to say he was the one who called the police. Trespassing, the Burger Shack manager yelled into the microphone when the reporter came into the restaurant, flashed a microphone and asked him why he called the police in the first place. Somebody knocked over one of those cardboard candy stands that said proceeds go to the fire department and that's when Sabrina called her daddy and asked him if it was against the law to run or cuss somebody out. Mr. John reported that a scholarship would be established in our boy's name so somebody could get the education dude wanted for himself and everybody thought it should be Dontre who got the scholarship but Sabrina's daddy said it wasn't enough money to support anyone trying to enroll in a reputable college and that our high school should be ashamed of itself for disrespecting Miss Marie and her son like that. And that's when Dontre announced that he was going to get his college on his own and fuck all of this. And Kendra walked with him to the counselor's office to ask about Pell Grants and Kendra whispered, both of y'all so smart. And Dontre fell into Kendra's arms and cried in the hallway outside the door to the counselor's office in front of the poster that said, R.I.P. with a big picture of our friend smiling wide. Marie said she saw them in the hallway, but she didn't say nothing because they needed a minute. Mr. Eric started wearing a t-shirt with dude's face on the front and his 3.87 grade point average across the back. Did none of us know dude was all about his books until the shirts were made, but we all knew he wasn't no thug and some of us started writing 3.87 in the bathroom stalls across our three ring binders and on the home room desk. According to Camilla, it was DeBron who tagged 3.87 on the side of Burger Shack and on the side of the courthouse. When the police came and lined up along the sidewalk ready to bust heads, Mr. Eric just lifted his hand up and called out our dude's name again, lifting his entire name up to God. And by then a hundred people had come to see what was going on. I wish he could have seen us, Skye said, as we all sat around her in the cafeteria eating lunchroom pizza while she told the story with her afro looking round and perfect as the sun. We started chanting his name too and Dante looked like he was about to cry and went down the hallway to be by himself and some of us got sent to the office for, using, for causing a disturbance. Some of us crowded into the hospital lobby to say our goodbyes even if some of us didn't know him like that. Miss Marie came down to the ICU rating room to see us all in our purple shirts with dude's picture and 3.87 on them bought by the teen center. Dontre said he was going to the park to play basketball and Ariella and Nas would say later that they saw him across the street from the burger shack just standing with his arms crossed. Miss Marie asked us all to keep fighting for what's right. Some of us ran down the corridor to the elevator to get out of there and some of us didn't move for a long time. After the rest of us drifted out into the hospital parking lot stunned like zombies, Arietta said, my mama say death make you family. And we leaned on cars, put our arms around each other, looked off into the space, checked our cell phones in silence until somebody said something stupid and made us laugh. On the last day of school, Maya kept asking everybody if they went to the funeral. 
Sharice tried to give Dantre the praying for you banner, but he mumbled something under his breath and threw it in the trash. Three weeks later, Tika told Freddie about what happened to Candace at the pool, how according to Malik, somebody called the police and said, them kids don't have passes, they don't live here. But Candace had already gotten permission from her uncle who lived in apartment 12 while he was at work. Malik said when the police came, Candace stood on one uh, side of the pool chairs and yelled, my uncle lives here, my uncle lives right over there. That's when the cop tackled her to the concrete and messed up her face, then handcuffed her and bent her arms back so far she had to go to the emergency room. Tanaya said Candace shouldn't have been standing on that chair. She might be a cheerleader, but that cop gave zero fucks about that until her mama came and somebody posted a video on Facebook. Tika told Freddie that Candace had planned to transfer to a performing arts school next year. Trinity said, don't matter if she's a dancer or a cheerleader or a giraffe. She's a black giraffe, Tanaya agreed. Kendra announced she had stopped by Candace's house and that she was improving but depressed. I'd be crazy, Tanaya said, if a cop put his hands on me like that. Later that summer at Anika's birthday party, we were all milling around the yard when dude's sister, Tiffany, showed up looking like she wasn't getting any sleep, rubbing her fingers across a watch slouching on her wrist that Dante said belonged to dude. How's Miss Marie, we all asked. She good, Tiffany said, scratching her eyebrow, still waiting to see what happens with that cop. Ah, girl, we loved him, Trinity said, and stepped on everybody's shoes to move in close and give Tiffany a hug. We were all awkward and quiet, but had come to realize in a few weeks what Ariella's mama meant when she said, death make you family. Some of us had started to move in closer to Tiffany, needing to hug her or just lay her hands on her shoulder when Candace walked in wearing a bright yellow sundress that glistened against her dark skin. Her arm was still in a sling and she had on heavy makeup, but we could still see the outline of a scraped place along, her side of her, along the side of her face. She wore a thick smear of pink lipstick and dark sunglasses, which made her look like a superhero or a soldier home from war, a survivor. So when she made her way toward us, switching like a runway model, we stepped away from Tiffany stopped crying and started clapping as if Candace had just given a speech or won a prize. Jonisha said, turn up the music, and we started dancing. Dante was in the corner of Anika's yard with his foot pressed up against the fence and stepped out to give Tiffany a hug before he slunk back against the fence. Maya and Anika slung their arms around Candace's neck while Kendra gently placed her hand on Candace's back. Blair walked up on Candace and flashed a flirtatious smile, stroked a mustache he didn't have yet, and said, Damn, queen. Kai whistled through his fingers, and all the grown-ups came out of the house to see what was going on. We gave each other dap and watched Candace switch around the yard. We made as much noise as we could. Candace smiled widely, though we could tell something was forever changed. We laughed and danced and clapped and ate because, at least in that moment, Ariella's mama was wrong. We didn't want to think about death making us family because we were all alive.
And so I'll, I'll close with four poems from, um, from Perfect Black. Perfect Black is a, a memoir in verse. So there are a lot of um, first-person poems, but I don't always consider the speaker of the poems to be directly me. Sometimes it's an I that's adjacent um, to me. Um, sometimes it's, uh, even though it's a first-person I, it's a communal, a communal I. So um, I'll just read a, a couple of them. So um, I'm going to read four, and then I'll be quiet. Then we can talk. Um, terrain. The map of me can't be all hills and mountains, even though I've been country all my life. The twang in my voice has moved downhill to the flatland a time or two. My taste buds have exiled themselves from fried green tomatoes and rhubarb for goat milk and pine nuts. Still I return to old ground time and again a homing blackbird destined to return. I am plain brown bag, oak and twig, mud pies and the gut-wrenching gospel in the throats of old tobacco brown men. When my spine crooks even further toward my mother, I will continue to crave the bulbous tang of wild shallots, the familiar game of oxtail and kraut boiling in a cast iron pot. I toe dive in all the rivers seeking the whole of me, scout virtual African terrain sifting through ancestral memories. But still, I'm called back home through hymns sung by stout black women in large hats and flowered dresses. You have to risk the briar bush to reach the sweet dark fruit and ain't no country woman all church in piney woods. There is pluck and cayenne pepper. There is juke joint gyrations in the young and bearing girth of this belly and these supple hips. All roads lead me back across the waters of blood and breast milk. From ocean to river to the lake to the creek to branch and stream back to the sweet rain to the cold water in the glass I drink when I thirst to know where I belong. I can't sing, but I'm about to. <laughs> Wade in the water, wade in the water, children, wade in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. Imagine a girl, not yet trouble, dressed in a crisp white dress, black patent leather shoes, and new white tights. Pressed hair smelling of royal crown, bangs curled under, glistening. He was the preacher, the Reverend William H. Mills Jr., long, good hair, slicked back, pearl-handled cane, pocket watch chain dangling from a double-breasted suit. We stand in water up to our knees. The congregation reads scripture, eyes peeking up between hymnals and Sunday hats. The Bible is handed to the deacon. I baptize you in the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Ghost. See me submerged in cold creek water that seeps into my nostrils, tastes like danger in my mouth. I fight the hand of the preacher, come up gasping and crying, Bless her heart, she's feeling the spirit, Sister Usher says under a heavenly hat. Everybody claps and commences to sing of being washed in the blood of the Lamb, but I didn't feel devotion. Felt wicked with my secrets. Wasn't even sure what the Holy Ghost was. See me 
with my legs closed and my skirt tailed down. See me cover my knees. See me bless my food. And comfort was found in baptismal rewards. A bottle of orange knee-high. A sanctified fried chicken leg. Corn pudding and German chocolate cake. Let the church say amen. My full belly, the most sacred part. Fat girl poem. <laughs> That was a fat girl poem. And I'll just read two more. Um, part of this book um, is about my mother who was um, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, and I grew up around the silences. We don't talk about mental illness enough in this country. And you certainly don't talk about mental illness if you're black. And you really don't talk about mental illness if you're Appalachian. So. Um, and nobody else talks about it either. I talk about those things because those are all things that I am, but nobody really talks about it. So um, when I was little, my mother was always gone. She spent about 10 years in and out of a mental institution, but nobody would ever tell me where she was. So this is, uh, I guess of all of my poems, this is the most um, anthologized poem. And hmm. Um, what else I need to tell you? Um, if you grew up, anybody grew up in a rural household? So if you grow up in the country and you grow up around farmers, um, you have to get used to dead things. Um, I think I was a vegetarian in training from a young age because <laughs> there was always somebody that I had named mostly. Um, you know, as an imaginative child, I was always out in the woods and um, always elsewhere on the farm and I named all the animals and my grandfather would tell me not to do that but I did it anyway and then I'd come home and there'd be Frida you know uh, on the table or whatever um, so this there's a hog's head in in this um, these poems also have illustrations and so there's an illustration of the of the hog's head here so, mental illness, <laughs> hog's head, <laughs> all um, angst of having a crazy mother all in one poem. Asking about my mother. In the small kitchen, the hog's head weaves the gamey scent of death throughout the house. My grandmother scrapes black hair from the hog's pink head with the sharp blade of her butcher knife. I ask her about my mother. I always ask her about my mother. I play paper dolls under a formica table with pearls around my neck and pink lipstick from my mother's treasure chest. My grandmother places the head into the tub and I watch her hands, wait for her to tell me where my mother's gone. My grandmother fills the tub with water. I hate that she always reminds me of all she's done for love. Remember, remember, hair, face, knife. She lifts the heavy tub and situates the hog upon the stove, covering all the burners and turns on all the eyes. And this last poem um, was originally published as flash fiction. Um, it's published here as a poem and it's been anthologized as a flash essay. All of those things are true. Mm -hmm.
Um, so I'll just read it, and then we'll chat. Meditation on grief, things we carry, things we remember. I remember this place where burdens wash away in the dark and mother's dresses float like blossoms. A boy drowns, his head turned toward home, body facing the farmer's house where the girl who loves him sleeps. She is the farmer's daughter. They say she is the one who hit his head, the one who hoisted the rock, the one who watched his blood ooze out. This is the way you wash your clothes in the creek. This is the way you catch catfish in deep water. The mothers stand in water to their knees, their dresses wafting out like sheets on a line. On the creek bank, a child runs circles, catching the wind, and the mother's dresses float like blossoms. The mothers sing prayers for the boy's mother who looks out her kitchen window and cries. The circle of mothers in the water whisper a prayer for the girl who tells all who will listen that she loved the boy who died. Her mother stands in the backyard, her hand on the chopping hoe with tears streaming down her face. The fathers brood in the fields, walking slow as lepers, hearts and houses filled with grief. I almost drowned once. My grandmother's dress blossomed around her like a sail. She was my John boat in the creek. My mother stood on the shore, frozen with fear, my father's name mute on her tongue, his kiss spoiled fruit in her young sweet mouth. That dead boy's ghost haunts this place, dark water flowing like a deacon's robe. On nights spoiled with teenage trouble, I went to the creek and waited for the boy, hoping he would listen. Do you dream of the farmer's daughter, I asked. Are you sorry for what you've done? He didn't answer. They say he raped the girl, but I wasn't afraid of him. By then, I had been raped too and was becoming a dangerous woman. I waited for him and held court with the moon. I'm here, I said. Let's get this done. In this place where burdens washed away, I stood, my dress flowering, floating. I was drowning too. My face turned toward home, my black body facing my father's house where my mother cried for me. They say the boy was handsome, but I never saw him in the flesh. At night, the creek did scare me, its rush like a boy's whispered threat in a girl's ear. But here, the mothers are always standing with water to their knees, their dresses billowing out like sheets on a line, praying because there was always something roaring in those trees, teeth gnashing, fathers killing boys for the sake of their daughters, eyes always watching, eyes always glistening in the dark. Thank you.